Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist analysis podcast from the Socialist Party. Millions of people from every walk of life have exploded onto the streets of Hong Kong. They demand the cancelling of a law which can send people to prison in China and greater democratic rights in the city. Police have responded with violence. The Chinese Communist Party is lining up soldiers at the border. In one of the planet's most concentrated centres of banking and finance, the movement shows no sign of backing down. This episode we ask, where did this movement come from? Could this be the beginning of a revolution? And how can the workers and youth of Hong Kong and China overcome dictatorship and win real improvements to their lives? Thanks for that introduction. Hello all, James Ivans here from the Socialist Newspaper Editor's Department. This episode, Socialism will be hearing from Claire Doyle from the Committee for a Workers International about the dramatic mass movement in Hong Kong, which is confronting the local government, the Chinese Communist Party and international finance capitalism. Hello, Claire. Hello, James. So Hong Kong's rigged local government, the so-called Legislative Council or LegCo, has threatened to use extremely repressive emergency laws just recently, and this is after millions have poured onto the streets, fought the police and joined strikes. What are the latest actions by protesters in this astonishing wave of mass defiance? Well, I must say to begin with that every day you think, well, can it go on? But it's already been about three months, this unprecedented mass movement in Mm -hmm. Hong Kong, which has involved all sorts of different layers in society. And you just think that also without a clear programme and a clear leadership, where do the demonstrations come from? Mm. And what is going to happen next? Of course, we have our own ideas about what should happen next. But the latest development has been massive protests about the sackings of employees in the airline Cathay Pacific. Mm -hmm. And not just by employees. I mean, obviously, employees are particularly angry about it and have protested on a working day, which may or may not mean striking. But other workers have also protested during the day and in the evening. And Mm. one of them is quoted in The Guardian today is saying, if we don't protest now, we won't be allowed to in future. And that was a teacher who'd turned out to support those workers. And, you know, we have seen very big demonstrations. I don't know if you want the details now. Yeah, why not? Could you explain to us then what has happened at this airline, Cathay Pacific, with these sackings? Well, it is the major airline and it operates in Hong Kong and there's a huge involvement of the Chinese government in that airline. But the protesters... At one stage, a couple of weekends ago, decided to occupy the airport, which is quite a dramatic thing to do. Mm. It was without necessarily calling strike action, but they managed to ground hundreds of flights over two days. And the police went in pretty viciously, and some people were hurt. I Mm. think that's where the young woman lost... Well, she was badly damaged in the eye, but there were all sorts of incidents of violence, and the demonstrators themselves withdrew and thought perhaps that wasn't the right tactic, which shows a kind of confusion Mm -hmm. in the leadership of the movement. And there was a sort of an inclination towards direct action, even terrorism. But that would really provoke the regime in Beijing if there were acts of terrorism, and they could use it as an excuse for going in. And I think the movement, as you might call it, Mm is trying to prevent that from happening. I mean, prevent any sort of terrorist acts and deliberate attacks on the police. Sure. But meanwhile, the police have been attacking the demonstrators, but some of them as agents provocateurs going into the demonstrations, trying to cause trouble with the police. You know, In disguise. Been, yeah, they've been stirring it up. So there's still a lot going on. 
And this is the latest protest, really, the unions involved in Cafe Pacific. And one of the one of the stewards is actually a flight attendants union chair said she'd been sacked after managers presented her with copies of a protest-related Facebook post. <laughs> the Confederation of Trade Unions plans a legal challenge, but why don't they say, well, let's have a strike in protest at this, yeah, yeah. a strike at Cafe Pacific? But that's an important development. There isn't at the moment a call for a general strike, a new, another call for a general strike. There has been a general strike recently, mm-hmm. on the 5th of August, actually. There was, with about a third of a million workers coming out of work. They haven't made that really? call, but, yeah, a third of a million from various different workplaces, and nobody knew quite how it was called. Okay. Same as the demonstrations, nobody knows quite. It's the social media is used, and there are some spokespeople. But as far as the, union, the unions are concerned, you've got the one union which is pretty tame. They have representatives on LegCo, but they don't make a lot of noise there. They could encourage strike action. I don't think they do. But the other trade union is totally pro the regime in Beijing, so obviously is not going to encourage strike action at the moment. But there is, I was going to say, there is a plan, I think, for a school student strike. Now that school students will be going back I think that they're on the demands for, the democratic demands, the five major demands of the movement now. What are those demands? Well, obviously the main demand of the movement and what provoked the action was the announcement by the government, Mm -hmm. the chief minister, Carrie Lam. So that this is a local government, the alleged government? Local government. They announced that they were going to introduce a law which would mean that people who had charged for offences in Hong Kong could be tried and imprisoned in China, what they call mainland China. And this is what really led to an explosion. It's been raised before, mm-hmm. and it's been suspended before. And so the demonstrators knew, or people who'd been involved in demonstrations before, including the huge, what they called Umbrella Revolution, knew that they could get something like this stopped. Sure. And... Quite quickly, the government of Carrie Lam, who was Beijing backing, withdrew that proposal, but they didn't take it off the books. Okay. It was suspended and not deleted, not abandoned, you know, by them. Mm-hmm. So that's the main demand, but the other demands include democratic rights, like suffrage, because LegCo, actually, it isn't one person, one vote mm. at the present time. I think there's the age of the vote, but the other demands that they include our independent public investigation. And we have seen lawyers on the streets, by the way, in their black work clothes, <laughs> demonstrating. That was, I think, a day after the general strike. Okay. And they are demanding independent public investigation into police violence. Okay. I mean, we would say not just independent and public, but the ordinary people, the youth who've been involved in the demonstrations and the workers who've been threatened and have been on strike, they should have representatives. They should be able to elect representatives onto an independent public inquiry. Anyway, their demands are limited. (laughs) They want the release of all those arrested, and hundreds, hundreds have been arrested. Even someone the age of 13 was arrested last week. Really? And I think it goes up to 60, (laughs) 70-year-olds. You know, it's such a mass movement that involves so many people in the population Mm. who don't expect to be arrested and are not doing anything provocative, but the police seem to be pushing for provocative action, and not actually succeeding. I think the other demand is dropping the riot charges, 
which can mean 10 years imprisonment right, okay. just, just for being on a demonstration. So those are the basic demands of the movement. Okay. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times so far the role of the very repressive dictatorship, the national government in Beijing, ruled by the so-called Chinese Communist Party. Now, that's been amassing troops at the border with Hong Kong, isn't that right? Yes, they've been doing exercises <laughs> near the border. And it's been publicised a little bit in, within China itself, saying that this is necessary, you know, we have to maintain the law. So they are preparing potentially to move in and crush this movement bloodily? They are there and could do that. There's a lot of speculation about a second Tiananmen, where the mm -hmm. tanks moved in against workers and students 30 years ago. Generally, I think most commentators, and I think we would say it's unlikely, it's unlikely, because this movement doesn't actually challenge the existence of the regime in Beijing. Okay. We can discuss the nature of what that is and what Xi Jinping's regime is defending, you know, what kind of regime it is, we mm -hmm. can discuss, or the nature of society in China, which is complicated. Mm -hmm. But what's happening in Hong Kong... It's challenging to them, but it doesn't sort of threaten their existence. And if they went in and took bloody reprisals on the movement in mm. the way that you mentioned, like Tiananmen, that would cause, cause extremely extensive damage to relations with the rest of the world in terms of trade and commerce and finance. Mm. Because Beijing does depend on relations, financial relations with other countries and trade. They depend on Hong Kong. So they wouldn't want to wreck the whole of that situation. They liaise with some of the biggest billionaires on the planet who are sure, based yeah. in Hong Kong, you know. But also, it could also have repercussions inside China, mm. which is something which is very difficult to know how far people are thinking, how far people know what's happening in Hong Kong, but how far they're thinking about what this means mm. and about whether it's got any relevance for them. And if the tanks rolled in and there was this bloodbath, that could spark something in China itself. So this conflict between the people and the regime has rapidly reached a quite incredible pitch. We've talked about what started this off, the particular law and the demands which the movement is putting forward right now. How did it escalate to this point so quickly? Well, it's actually involved more than a third of the population of Hong Kong. There's about 7.3 million people live in Hong Kong. Mm. And on the, one of the earliest demonstrations, there were 2 million people. Wow. And one of the most recent demonstrations, there was 1.5 million people. Sunday before last, I think it was. Okay. It is quite amazing, mm. the size of the demonstrations and the protests, but people are angry that they don't have even basic democratic rights. You'd think that there would have been social movements earlier on other issues, like on the question of housing, which is a horrific calamity for young people mm -hmm. in Hong Kong and for older people. There's a crisis in housing, I think, in relation to, to wages and standards of living, you know, purchasing power even. All of those are big issues, which partly because the trade unions have been doing nothing and even the left so-called left in the LegCo haven't really mobilised on those issues. Mm -hmm. When it came to something as basic as this, that you could be you know, shipped abroad and tried just after you'd been arrested or accused rather than actually charged with anything, made people angry. I think that 
you know, one of the reasons it has escalated is because not just the issue of the extradition law mm -hmm. and other democratic grievances, but the way that the police has gone in against peaceful demonstrators, it's amazing that there hasn't been a death as yet. I think if there was a death, <laughs> it would get even more massive and violent and the, difficult the to predict. Mm. Yeah, the demonstrations and the reaction. But it's the way that the police have gone in against young people and old people that has angered the rest of the population. They've mm. said, no, you can't do that. And the police have been beefing up their own armaments. They've used what they call pepper spray, tear gas. I think they've now got water cannon for the first time. They've had live ammunition on the streets. Really? Which they haven't used. They've fired into the air and they haven't used against demonstrators, luckily, because that would be a death and that would be a further escalation. But this is, I think it's, this is why it's escalated. The question could be asked by you. You know, is this a revolutionary situation? Well, is Could this a revolutionary situation? Could this develop into an actual revolution, an overthrow of the authorities in Hong Kong at least? Well, it's a good question. As they say, when the answer isn't exactly clear. Mm. But it has elements of a revolutionary situation. And the revolution can start over one incident. You know, it takes one spark to set off a prairie fire, as Vladimir Ilyich Lenin explained. When the conditions are there. Yeah, when the conditions are there, when the anger is there. But it takes more than that. He talked about four conditions for revolution. Okay. And you can definitely see the first one is a split at the top and a disagreements about how to deal with the crisis, whether to use repression mm -hmm. or concession. And actually, the chief minister, Carrie Lam, went missing for quite a while because she didn't really quite know what to do but she's been pushed back into the limelight and making speeches about we won't give up on this extradition law and so mm -hmm. on. but maybe sooner or later she could be a sacrificial lamb and concessions will be made so there's that split in the ruling layers whether to use repression or concession mm -hmm. the second condition is the middle class being in flux well, the middle class is not just in flux, it's quite involved in the movement and siding with the demonstrators, partly because they want their own you know, democratic rights. Sure. You have the question of the forces of the state, whether they can be affected to sympathise with the movement. I have seen some reports that police have sided with the demonstrators. You don't see much publicity about that, and sure. it may not be widespread. I think it's quite possible that some of the younger police, even some of the young members of the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, who are based in Hong Kong and who have been on the streets, they could have a lot of questions in their minds. Mm -hmm. And it raises another thing about whether the troops from the mainland were sent in, about whether appeals to them not to fire on the demonstrators, whether they could work. That's another whole question. The third major element is the working class being on the move. Okay. En masse. Well, it's not been en masse, but it has been, it's been there in the demonstrations as individuals, and then you've had a general strike, and you've had strike action, even of teachers, even there was a civil servant strike mm -hmm. on the Friday before the general strike, actually. So you have the working class on the move to some extent. Mm -hmm. The fourth condition for a successful revolution mm -hmm. is, of course, a revolutionary party or a party with some kind of mass base amongst workers and young people and a leadership that understands what is happening and the line of march in order to get a victory. Now that is not there. Okay. And the mystery is how are these demonstrations and strikes and things organised? Well, <laughs> these days, unlike in Lenin's day, 
you have the social media, mm-hmm. and a lot of things can happen on social media. I don't understand them all because I can't operate them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't spend my time on Facebook. But social media obviously can spread the news, time and date, where we're going to do it, you know. And people turn up. It's actually quite a small area and sort of relatively easy to organize mm-hmm. uh, mass demonstrations. But without a party, can this continue? Or will it die? Will it just die down? And really, the question is still hanging in the air. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that the working class is beginning to assert itself in these demonstrations, and that a general strike was part of that. Was that a strike for political demands? What do we think needs to happen for that element of the movement to continue forward? I think given the nature of the trade unions in Hong Kong, it can be very difficult to get them to move on these political issues, even on the democratic issues, as I mentioned before, Mm. on the question of wages, conditions at work, or even against sackings. I think it's difficult to get them to move, but that doesn't mean to say that we, as Marxists in Hong Kong, wouldn't be going to the workers and saying, push your organisations to take firmer action, to discuss at an all-Hong Kong level, naming a date for taking a solid general strike action. But we would also say, if that isn't happening, you're coming up against a brick wall, Mm then you need to be raising the issue of sort of rank-and-file organisations in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Probably what we would raise as even more important in this situation is the need for the areas. The areas in Hong Kong, I've only visited there once, but they're very distinct areas. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows the areas. In each area and each workplace, really, it should be feasible, and we would advocate that there are local assemblies that elect representatives who are subject to recall if they're not carrying out the wishes of the assemblies, but to go to committees on a local and an all-Hong Kong basis and to link up with representatives from the workplaces. And there are some big workplaces. The docks have got big workforces. The airport, as we've seen, Mm -hmm. the banks have got a lot of employees, but transport workers as well. Sure. If you're Marxists and revolutionaries, you would be wanting to talk to the transport workers, for them not just to block, but to take action, to take strike action. And these police have been sending forces onto the trains and beating up travellers, actually, and the trade unions are saying, no, we're not operating with the police behaving like this. There are all sorts of issues that they could take up, but if they could link up, we think one of the most important demands is, well, of course, all the democratic rights, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, they're not even amongst the five demands of the movement. Okay. Freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and so on, that the movement should be fighting for. But one of the most important demands is for a revolutionary constituent assembly, democratic revolutionary constituent assembly. What does that mean? Well, it means representatives of the workers and the young people, maybe through the schools, coming together to discuss what kind of programme is needed to change society, not just to get the democratic reforms, but to actually change society. And in the Hong Kong situation, it would be how to link up with the workers in China, which is a massive workforce. Yeah, yes. You'd need in order to transform society in China, yeah. And that would be necessary to take the movement to victory in Hong Kong as well, to link up with the working class in China, would it? I would think so. Okay. (laughs) But of course, China does claim to be a socialist country. So this question, which you mentioned earlier, of what is China? What kind of society is it? Whose side is the so-called Communist Party on? This does raise those questions. Well, China is not socialist. Okay. And has never been socialist. Okay. For a long time after the Second World War, 
when Mao came to power, imperialism and capitalism just sort of vanished, really. Okay. And they stepped in. So there was state ownership and a plan and huge reforms for the massive peasantry and to some extent for the working class. But the workers weren't involved in it. They had no democratic control. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't socialism in the way that we understand it. It was a state-owned, planned economy without any control from below of workers. And in fact, if workers began to try and assert their interests and their demands and try to get better conditions at work or better wages, shorter hours, then they would be dealt with, in inverted commas. Right, okay. Sacked, imprisoned, fined, or sort of disappeared in the past and in the present. This would happen. And so the demand for democratic rights in China is also extremely important, and the rights of workers to be able to have independent trade unions is also very important. Okay. And an independent political voice, but that's a very big task, given that it is a dictatorship. Mm. So the early period of the Chinese regime, which you're talking about, this is something Trotskyism would call a deformed workers' state, isn't it? Where capitalism had been got rid of, but the working class was not in control of society, so it was heavily deformed and it was a bureaucratic dictatorship. However, today, you do have billionaires, don't you? In the regime in China, you do have the presence of big multinational corporations and big foreign finance capital side by side with this bureaucratic control, big elements of state planning of economic development. So what is China now? Well, now it's a very special kind of state capitalism, okay. which we've discussed for many years in our international organization. Because in the past, we had big disagreements with other so-called Marxists, Trotskyists, about state capitalism, because they said that the Soviet Union was state capitalist. Okay. We said, no, you know, that state-owned, planned economy, without control from below of the working class, but originally it did have control by the working class through the Soviets. So that was a degenerated worker state. Okay. And you're right that in China, what was established when Mao came to power with his peasant army was a deformed worker state from the beginning. And there's been all sorts of zigzagging in relation to what to do about developing the economy in the countryside, developing factories and industry and commerce and finance. And it's been very hidden, really, behind a sort of Chinese wall or not exactly an iron <laughs> curtain, but it's been difficult to see exactly what's happening in the economy. Yeah. And there have been zigzags between allowing more and more private involvement of private capitalists and allowing the so-called Communist Party, which has got no relation to communism whatsoever now, mm. members of the Communist Party becoming millionaires, and you mentioned billionaires, some mm. of them are high up in the government in China. But there's a sort of swing between how much it's private interest involved and how much it's public interest involved in finance, in building and in industry. Mm -hmm. But things are moving towards capitalism. It seems that under Xi Jinping, there's been a bit of a, a pulling back with more control by the state of what is happening. And that gives it a particular strength when it comes to the world economy and trade wars and so on. They can do all sorts of things that normal, in inverted commas, capitalist states can't do. For example, even in relation to the currency, mm. recently, you know, the Chinese government has been able to manipulate or control the currency to its advantage. They've let the yen fall, which has actually given them an advantage 
I better not go into this. It's a lot of detail on the economy, but mm. they do have a certain state control in relation to finance, the currency, in relation to what is going to be built, what the emphasis is going to be in the economy, mm. and trade relations. It's still quite unique, but it has no relation to communism or socialism. So it's not exactly an inspiration, <laughs> but it has meant that the lives of poverty-stricken peasants have been changed. I mean, peasants have been able to go into the cities, get jobs, uh, awful living conditions and awful working conditions, but standard of living's gone up a bit. The health service is better than it would have been under capitalism sure. over all these decades. There's a lot more which could be said about the hybrid regime which exists in China and perhaps we should have another podcast episode at a later time which goes into some more detail on that. But the point being that the Chinese Communist Party is not acting by and large in the interests of the working class and is attempting to maintain its own position. Well, you, you spoke about hybrids. I mean, it's probably gone further than being a hybrid, just half and half. It's gone more towards being this special kind of capitalist regime, and it's a special kind of imperialist regime, by the way, in Africa and Asia, really exploiting workers of other continents. With the Belt and Road Project, for yeah. example. Yes, and there has been some resistance to that in one or two countries. But because the regime, and even Xi Jinping, refers to Mao, they still honour Mao Zedong, as the leader of the revolution against capitalism, really, or the leader of the revolution which has made such a difference to their country, and mm. his portrait still hangs and so on, there is that idea that there's something special. And Maoists, there are Maoists in China who claim credit for it being different and for the increased living standards of the peasants and the workers. Their discussions could even be where there can be resistance to the completion of the process of establishing capitalism okay. in China, fully establishing capitalism in China. There's talk about colour revolutions now, is what's happening in Hong Kong. A colour revolution, I've been discussing that with people as well. So that means what, like a democratic revolution against... Well, it means, yeah, but no, not just, because that could be revolutionary, but it means with the idea of establishing capitalism fully you okay. know, in a country that's gone through this transformation. But China has not gone through the same experience as the so-called Soviet Union mm -hmm. about 30 years ago where all the elements of the planned economy were wiped out in a matter of months, actually. I know because I was living there when it was happening. The economy collapsed, but it was all the bureaucrats, high-up members of the Communist Party, became oligarchs, you know, and took over the banks. I mean, they killed a few of their number in battles and storms. It was the Wild West. And they banned the Communist Party, and that was the end of the Communist Party and those people. But this in China, that's what the regime has wanted to avoid, and they've really been riding a tiger, to use another analogy, to prevent the so-called Communist Party, the privileged layer that that represents, mm. from being wiped out. Mm -hmm. So they're scared stiff of a genuine movement from below that might be moving in the direction of socialism, of workers and poor people actually taking over the running of the, of the economy and reversing privatisation and so on. Okay, so it's clear that they see a threat inherent in this movement and particularly in its spread across the border if that were to happen into mainland China. How do the events in Hong Kong look set to unfold immediately, do you think? Well, as I said earlier, and it's extremely difficult to see how long this conflict 
which occasionally looks like a standoff and then looks like a new major conflict, will last. We would say, if only there was a revolutionary party or Marxists who would say, we'll carry through a revolution against the regime in Hong Kong, one of the most concentrated class of capitalists and financiers that you can imagine, all in one place, that carry mm. through a revolution against them for the establishment of democratic socialism and spread it to China and throughout China. But whatever happens in Hong Kong without a leadership, mm. it's not likely to really inspire workers and young people in China except with the idea that they might have some power, but it's not going to radically change things in Hong Kong or in China unless a revolutionary leadership develops in the course of the events, which can't be ruled out, but unfortunately is not likely at this stage. Fine, so this question of leadership is absolutely essential. You've also talked about the need to organise in the neighbourhoods and in the workplaces and to go beyond the important but very limited five demands which the movement is putting forward at this stage to really tackle some more fundamental issues about how society is organised. So what kind of policies and organisation does the Committee for a Workers' International think are needed to take this movement to a successful conclusion? Well, I think I've outlined the sort of policies that we would put forward sure. in that situation. I mean, fighting for all the democratic demands, basic democracy, but, you know, democratic freedoms are enshrined in the constitutions of most capitalist states. Mm. But we would say that in order to establish them, given the nature of the Hong Kong state and the nature of the Chinese state, it's necessary to go further. And then we would have to build through speaking to young people in the schools, in the workplaces, on the streets through leafleting, through producing newspapers and so on in the local language to convince people that socialism is necessary, that they have to go all the way to get rid of not just Lenko, but all representatives of the capitalist class and establish workers, a genuine workers' democracy. <laughs> it's a huge task, but there's no alternative for establishing the rights of ordinary working people and young people to a better life and a future. If they were successful in Hong Kong and in China, I mean, that would be... It would spread like wildfire through Asia mm. and worldwide, and we would be very happy. <laughs> and so by workers' democracy, you mean more than just the right to elect a government, but also to have these institutions based on the workplaces so that industry is taken under the control of the working class rather than being owned and controlled by profit interests. I do mean that. Well, there's an awful lot of ideas and potential in this very inspiring movement which has taken place in Hong Kong. The Committee for a Workers International has its ideas about what is needed to take the movement forward. If you agree and you want to help build for the success of genuine socialist ideas in Hong Kong, China and the rest of the world, you should join us in the Committee for a Workers International. You can read more about what we think and get in touch with us at socialistworld.net. And now we're going to have an update on the latest workers' struggles and news and campaigns issues which have been taking place in England and Wales over the past few days. So first of all, we're welcoming back Scott Jones. Hello, Scott. Hi, Rhett. And Scott's going to give us our industrial update. What's been happening, Scott? There could be a big strike looming by Communication Workers Union members, the CWU, in Royal Mail, okay. who have taken part in mass meetings, which have been extremely angry 
and have led to a national ballot which could mean 100,000 postal workers taking strike action. So what are they angry about? They're angry about the relentless attacks on their terms and conditions, the workload that they've had to put up with, and alongside that, a bullying management. And there's already been a rash of unofficial walkouts around the country over these issues, and the CWU are trying to make that official now on the national scale, bringing everyone out. And of course, Royal Mail's now privatised, as has been for a few years, and the current boss, a guy called Rico Back, has told the union... This is what he said. I am the CEO. I can do what I like. <laughs> you know, which is outrageous. And this is a real opportunity for union members, you know, to prepare to send a message of their own that he can't and the bosses can't do what they like. Great. What else have there been struggles in? Well, in the NHS, as we've previously reported, workers in Bradford have been taking strike action to stop what's effectively a backdoor privatisation of their jobs. This is the so-called Holy Iron subsidiaries. That's yeah. right, yeah. The Unison members have been fighting to stay, as they call it, 100% NHS, and they've won a reprieve as part of that strike action, pushing the health bosses back and forcing them to delay the implementation until February next year. Right. And what we're calling for now is for the next NHS Trust Board meeting, which is on the 11th of September, to become a mass rally of those workers and supporters and other trade unionists to call for the scrapping of those plans altogether. And the Trade Union Congress, which is the national conference of the coordinating body of all the unions in Britain, that is meeting soon, isn't it? It is in Brighton on the 8th of September, starting. And as usual, that day, there's going to be a rally by the rank and file organisation, the National Shop Stews Network. Well, a lot of these issues are going to be major themes as part of that rally. Speakers going to include the CWU General Secretary, representing postal workers Dave Ward, Unite General Secretary Len McCluskey, ASDOR President and Socialist Party member Amy Murphy, as well as other militant trade union leaders and workers in struggle. And of course, given Boris Johnson has recently declared that he's going to prorogue Parliament in an attempt to manoeuvre past parliamentary oversight of his Brexit plans, there is a case for the Trade Union Congress to coordinate that action and call a mass mobilisation of some sort, and I'm sure that will be a theme of the NSSN rally as well. Now for the update on some of the recent current events and campaigning which has been taking place. We welcome back Ian Patterson. Hello Ian. Hi James. Now Ian, one of the big stories internationally has been the incredible amount of destruction taking place in the Amazon rainforest. Exactly. Everyone would have seen what's taking place with the Amazon with the fires there. They're so extensive they can be seen from space. The Amazon rainforest is absolutely crucial. A million indigenous people live in the area and rely on it. Uh, for survival and it also has a stabilizing effect on the climate now brazil's right-wing president bolsonaro when he stood for election promised not to protect a single centimeter of the rainforest he's cut 23 million dollars from the environment agency in brazil we say deforestation and bolsonaro's pro-rich policies have to stop he's got to go and we're calling for a united front of working class organizations in brazil trade unions, social movements to get rid of him. We're calling for an end to the capitalists profiting from this description. In the Socialist Party and the Committee for a Workers International, we say these big companies, particularly the polluters, they have to be nationalised under democratic control of the working class. Capitalism is destroying the planet. A socialist world will allow workers to cooperate, fight climate change and protect the environment. And climate change, of course, is a particular issue for the younger generation. This is the world that the youth are going to inherit. But at the same time, elderly people have been under attack in England and Wales. Isn't that right? Exactly. A right-wing think tank, the Centre for Social Justice, has proposed increasing the state pension age to 75. Well, I suppose that more affects middle-aged workers who are about to have their pensions, but it's also an attack on the elderly, isn't it? It's attacking everybody who wants to retire, making people work until they drop. Boris Johnson has cynically said this isn't going to happen. 
the pension age is going to stay the same when actually it is rising to 68 in the next few years. It's already on the back of pensioners losing their free TV license. Mm. And we say we want to see an immediate increase in the state pension by 50% as a step towards a living pension, a pension that retired workers can actually live on, alongside demands that you can unite the whole working class, raising a minimum wage to at least £10 an hour, scrapping zero-hour contracts, bringing in rent control in council homes and ending austerity for everybody, young and old. As well, of course, as reversing the changes to the pension age, so they go back down so that people who want to retire can if they wish to. And we've reported in previous episodes, haven't we, on the struggle of the Lincolnshire health visitors. Exactly. They're striking against £2,000 pay cuts and reflecting the level of support they got in the community. They had a rally of 300 people a few days ago. And we say the trade unions have got to link these kind of struggles that are taking place, this action that's taking place to increase its power and make sure these workers win. And in Worcestershire, and this has been a running issue for the past few years in all parts of the country, but in Worcestershire particularly right now, there are threatened cuts to the fire service. Even before these cuts have come through, the fire brigade unions say that they only make their 10-minute attendance time when they have to get to a fire, roughly half the time. At one meeting in Bewdley, people pointed out, well, as well as the fire station being cut, they've already lost the local bank, the local library, and the bus services rubbish as well, showing how little services they have in some of these communities, how much has been cut. In another area, in Surrey, on the 15th of August, 14 fire stations did not have enough firefighters on one single night. And our new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, we all know that he cut fire stations, cut fire engines, cut firefighters when he was the Mayor of London. We say that we need campaigns like this, led by the Fire Brigade Union and other trade unions to reverse these cuts, and that Jeremy Corbyn should call on Labour councils to stop these cuts now. Thanks very much, Ian. Thanks very much, Scott. Thanks, James. We want you to send us recordings from picket lines and campaigns and reports of your activity. We also want your questions, comments and ideas for future episodes. To do that, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Socialism the podcast has no wealthy backers. We survive thanks to the financial support of ordinary working class and young people. And we're proud of the political independence that gives us. If you like what you hear, help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review and subscribing so you don't miss out. Don't forget to recommend us to your co-workers and friends. You can read more about what we think and find out about joining us at socialistparty.org.uk. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, see the Committee for Works International website at socialistworld.net. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party. This week we heard from Claire Doyle, speaking to James Ivans, along with Ian Patterson and me, Scott Jones. Till next time, solidarity.